2: Hey, everybody, it's your disgusting, brawny wizard, Holden McNeely.
0: And it's me, your South African accented bureaucrat <laughs> who seems like pretty shitty, kind of like a Michael Scott figure, but then you learn to uh, love him as his humanity is robbed. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to attempt to do a South I'm African accent. I'm so sad accent.
2: that you're not doing the South African I can,
0: accent. I cannot can do South African accent. All right. Come on, man. Because, because, man, van, man, do it. <laughs> now, fuck, it's like 800 layers to do a proper <laughs> South African accent.
2: That's right. Today we're talking about District 9. Uh, Neil Blomkamp's, uh, in my opinion, masterpiece. It's a fantastic sci-fi film that came out. Uh, not too long ago. Uh,
0: no, it's been a solid ten years at this point. That's so
2: weird because to me, it feels like it came out like three years ago. No, and it, it came... looks like it came out just a couple years ago. It, uh, it, I think it really that's, uh, that that does to, hold up. But to it, me, it holds up like
0: crazy. What sparked this is uh, just uh, I've been really obsessed with like how long ago ten years really is. Right. Uh, we did our Dead Space episode that came out in like 2008, and people were like, "Oh, the memories," and I was like. <laughs> Wait, why are you why are you like going full nostalgia trip for 2008? And now it's been a while, yeah. and so like I was thinking of the things in 2008, 2009 that really uh, impacted us. And I'm I'm sorry, District Nine is nostalgia now.
2: Yeah, weirdly enough, it's a
0: retro movie now.
2: But man, it holds up so good in my opinion. I just rewatched it uh, before I came here. I uh, I saw it in the theater, uh, oh, and I, I remember. Going into the theater, not quite knowing what this movie was going to be about, and then as soon... It was kind of like the thing when the premise hit me. It hit me over the head, and I was, like, so on board for it. Just being, you know, just having these, like, alien refugees in this, uh, you know, in intense Johannesburg environment with... Uh, it was just so over the top, so great. Like, when that warlord shows up, and he's like eating the, alien, the 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 prawns is what they call them the aliens to try to like get their powers and it just like the movie like starts with this premise of okay we have these like aliens from this abandoned ship that we're dropped down and we're dealing with how, just what to do with them but as that especially in that opening all the way up until the inciting incident which is when that shit <laughs> you know
0: he gets a uh, goo bukaki. yeah
2: when the goo hits him in the face and he you know everything goes bad
0: uh also known as Chekhov's goo
2: just every every second of it is just it just gets more and more intense every minute of the movie you're just like what the hell you just don't think it can get crazier and then they introduce a new insane element I mean and as soon as they get to the camp for the first time. Uh, and just the way that just people are just exploding mm. on impact, like the, the intensity of that. The, I, I forgot just how crazy violent this movie is. It, it, it And it does not stop. It is just un- an unbelievable bloodbath of just constant exploding
0: people. According to interviews with Neil Blomkamp, uh, it, the violence wasn't specifically done to please producer. Peter Jackson, who is also known for his very gory early movies, of course, Uh, it was just a happy coincidence that, you know, it turned into what it was.
2: Well, and that's why I think the underlying theme for the show to me uh, for this episode is people coming from very simple and small beginnings and going on to do something really extraordinary. And that's the case for Peter Jackson. That's the case for Neil Blomkamp that's the it's like this little South African movie that could and it did it did very well i remember people really loving it and i loved it so much i like i immediately got it on dvd as soon as i can i think i might have been a bootleg dvd from the weird uh porn blanket, shop blanket man the oh weird no jerk off porn shop place that just said it just said fruit mm-hmm. in front of it on the, <laughs> on the on the sign but it was clearly not a fruit stand like in any sense of the word and you'd walk in and there were there were weird booths in the back and it had a very specific smell and uh, I think I probably received a DVD from there. But either way, I immediately, as soon as I could get a hand, my hands on it, I watched it again at home. Uh, it was It's a movie I've come back to a couple times. Just a fantastic film. Did you see it in the theaters, Jake? I, it
0: was a hot August weekend, and I went to see it with uh, my buddy Isaac. That's who, right. a great summer movie, by the way. We didn't mention that. No, but it was August. It was like it did no confidence. They just kind of dumped it out there. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, this wasn't supposed to be a blockbuster even ironically enough, the animated movie like 9, remember that shitty like 3D animated burlap sack Tim Burton-looking uh, movie? Uh yes,
2: I think I remember that you movie was, like that.
0: was also called 9 and was like weird, in theaters yeah. at the same
2: time. One of those. I think weird there was a third
0: 9 movie. I can't <laughs> remember what it was, but like it was not treated well, you know, um and uh we saw it in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. It was a blistering hot day. As soon as we got outside, it was just we could not exist. We ran into a fucking Whole Foods market and just walked up and down the aisles for what must have been like an eno- like another two hours, <laughs> just talking about how amazing and how each decision that the film made like fed into each other, and how you know cutting edge special effects. Uh, it had a message. It had like an amazing performances from actors we had never seen before. It, everything just blew our minds. Yeah. It's been forever since I've seen some, one of those, a movie that was so good that you had to just like stop your life and confirm that you truly experienced what you had just seen. Be,
2: it's because it's like a very, it was a very tightly wound narrative. I feel like it was, um, it had a completely unique look and feel to it. Unlike any other sci-fi movie I'd seen up to that point. <laughs> and it just, and it's a movie that just doesn't let you go. It doesn't, it never stops. It's always moving forward, driving at a great pace, and again, as you said, and it's full of these no-name actors you've never heard before, a voice you'd never really heard before, dealing with the history of South Africa and Johannesburg and uh, apartheid, and we will talk more about that. I actually really enjoyed getting to learn quite a bit about the history of Johannesburg. Uh, and it because it's very much so married to this film, but it's a story that a lot of people don't tell, or if they do tell it, they're not going to tell it in this cool sci-fi setting. They're going to tell it in a history piece, you know. Uh, that's that's maybe a movie uh, some and people, people, aren't gonna yeah, people, people aren't going to watch. Yeah, people aren't going to go
0: see. We're not going to go full fucking uh, uh, whatever. But a movie about how society dehumanizes refugees to the mm. point of like treating them as another species. Yeah is very prescient and a lot sure. of people could do to you know instead of sending a uh, lengthy Facebook rant with your weird cousin huh. uh, maybe just like sit him down and watch District 9 <laughs> a fun sci-fi film who knows maybe that might change some
2: hearts I life. mean it's one hell of a movie so w- why not you know yeah. Um and uh, yeah let's let's get into it I guess at this point It all starts with uh, Neil Blomkamp. Neil Blomkamp, who was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, of course. Johannesburg is the largest city in South Africa and one of the 50 largest urban areas in the world. Blomkamp said, I knew I wanted to be in movies, so I thought I wanted to be in special effects like model making and prosthetic effects. So at 16, while still in high school, he meets this guy, this older guy, who also went to his high school but on a different year, of course. Uh, His name is Charlto uh, Copley. Did I say that right? Charlto Copley, and he is 22 years old. Uh,
0: it's Specifically, Charlto uh, has a friend who is still teaching art at his old high school. Okay, that's and it's how that, it happens. It's that middle party, that art teacher that sees a young Neil and is like, hey, this fucking kid's good with computers. Uh, you should talk to my friend. He's He has a production company. He has a ton of computers, and it's this magical thing where uh, we've talked about it over and over again with these like kind of geniuses that are on the cutting edge of this emergent technology. It's the kid that, through some weird happenstance, gets unfettered access to these tools and yes. gets to grow up with them and learns to utilize them. They
2: essentially just have a deal where he gets to play with all their toys in this production company as long as he assists them with their hired projects that they need. But uh, the way that uh, Charlton Copley tells it He really was just fascinated with what Blomkamp was doing and he really just brought him in less so to get help from him on on the business side and really more so so that he could stand over his shoulder and just get a kick out of what he was doing. He from the very beginning really believed in his work. Uh, as a young creator uh, And at the age of 18 however He ends up moving to Vancouver That is Blomkamp Well his
0: uh, whole family gets uh, Because kind his of, whole um, yeah,
2: yeah his whole family What is it for work probably With the parents I assume so uh, Or they just
0: the, You know it was By this time it was the 90s The mm-hmm. political situation was shifting I guess so And
2: so he ends up going To the uh, Vancouver Film School Again simple and small beginnings You have Johannesburg South Africa mm-hmm. and, and mixed together with Canada Canada actually A lot of Canadians and talent is going to be utilized for this film. Two very, you know, outside of the mainstream film places. You it's, know, I mean, I mean, Canada's got a lot going on. They got a lot of comedy. They got more entertainment happening, independent entertainment happening than South Africa. But still, uh, definitely not the Hollywood it's, big shots. What I'm
0: reminded of is uh, obviously it relates to our individual experiences with um, cr- with the creative art, which is comedy, and you know. You have your smaller city scenes. Yeah. You have, you know, a group of people that are just as passionate, just as involved, spend just as many hours kind of working on their craft, but, you know, they haven't made the jump for a myriad of reasons to, like, the major centers. Because they're afraid,
2: Jake. They're frightened to come to the big, big city where the cocaine flows like very cheap wine <laughs> and the dirty men ogle the 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 women in the streets. And have little grabby hand. They all with the grabby grabbies and all uh, that stuff.
0: And you were couch. almost on like a Velvet Underground Lou Reed rant, but then you started <laughs> talking about the grabby. They cups. ask him to sit down on a wet couch
2: and to talk about what movies they could be in. They're like, "Why is it wet? And why is it sticky, Jake? Why don't we stay in Vancouver, Jake, where the couches are
0: dry and the weed flows like cocaine?" So. <laughs> So it just kind of ends up that Neil Blomkamp, this very creative, visual kind of kid, uh, ends up making friends, two very distinct group of friends, one in Johannesburg and one in Vancouver, one focused on like kind of gritty productions and like kind of uh, avant-garde film, and another one. Uh, focused on just uh, visual effects and mm-hmm. and you know the emergent world of uh, digital imagery
2: and it is uh, that background in effects that gets him his start uh, outside of college. His first gig was special effects and three D animator for the Canadian sci fi series uh, Stargate SG one, which was like very very Canadian made.
0: Uh, <laughs> I, did you ever watch Stargate? Uh, no, but around the time of um, when I was like doing a bunch of uh, anime... Well, I was performing at anime festivals up and down the uh, mid-Atlantic area. Uh, So if you're a military nerd and a nerd nerd, you were super into SG-1 because Mm -hmm. it was like a very hoorah, like uh, regimented vision of a sci-fi show.
2: I mean, I definitely saw the film.
0: We all saw the film.
2: Right, but I think I I definitely, uh, uh, on a board sunday or whatever i think i definitely maybe ingested an episode or two but wasn't super into it there's also a show called first wave that he worked on before moving over to american television with the medical show mercy point this was probably around the time mercy point was probably like the eighth in line of uh, from er it was like uh, chicago hope and do you remember all those medical hour long they still
0: exist i mean They're Grey's
2: anatomy is, is, is today's big one
0: it's, it's the perfect genre. There's a person has a problem. You solve it. Next episode.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, um, he then gets uh, his first role as lead animator on the American cyberpunk TV show Dark Angel. Did you ever hear of that one?
0: <laughs> uh, no, but uh, wasn't that James Cameron?
2: I don't know. I, I was <laughs> like, what the fuck? Uh, I'd never heard of it before. He was also lead 3D animator for the Kurt Russell and Kevin Costner helmed 3,000 Miles to Graceland, another film I've never seen before he then worked as a visual effects artist at the embassy visual effects who did iron man. That was the, one of their big ones. And, um, rainmaker digital effects was another place he worked at. Uh, was-
0: to, yeah, to point, uh, the, when we say, uh, The embassy uh did Iron Man. It's uh they They also did the mecha effects specifically in District Nine because their kind of wheelhouse was they were the cutting edge at making a robot look realistic on camera. They were on that edge. That was their
2: niche. Like I so they probably did that mecha suit in District Nine. That's what I'm saying. That's what they did, right? Uh, Because another company really good at like a suit, a suit that mechanically opens up really cool for you to get into and move around in. Like, specifically, is what they're really good Just at. Just
0: metal panels that don't look fake and reflective. Yeah. Basically, is what their wheelhouse was. Um, yeah. And uh, he was also doing work for commercials. He was also, you know, working on the special effects link. And as his uh, side project in between gigs, he would work on short films. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing you need to know about Neil Blomkamp is he is a quiet, very average science fiction nerd and so he would spend his days like reading michio kaku books and you know reading about ray kurzweil and the singularity mm-hmm. you know all this high concept shit and in his short films it was the only place where he could explore all this kind of stuff sure. so he kind of uh, you know was obsessed with the ways that the you know uh humanity Kind of bumps up against uh, sci-fi like problems like aliens and robots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was the 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 temp, I believe it was called.
2: Oh yeah, his uh, so yeah, he makes four shorts starting in 2004, um, and these shorts would end up getting the attention of Peter Jackson. So these shorts are called Tetraval. Which uh, is a one minute and twenty second long short film. Definitely check it out.
0: Oh, it's I, at the time it was mind blowing. Yeah, it, it was looks
2: pres- really cool, and and you totally catch District Nine vibes from it as well. Well, it's
0: pretty much the same robot as Chappie.
2: Yeah, it's very very much Chappie. Uh,
0: and he and again, this is this is this is what made Neil Blomkamp special. Is so many people made like three D cool animations. Yeah. So many people kind of uh, were pushing the boundaries of what they could make with this new technology. But it was Neil Blomkamp that was like more obsessed with trying to make it seem naturalistic. Yeah, so.
2: putting and putting it in a third world country type of environment mm-hmm. really hits that home, right? It's like getting the dust on that robot, getting the having that robot look like it blends into. It's creepy. It's like jarring to watch, like seeing like this super futuristic robot in this very realistic space, and all the more realistic because again, like I said, it's like it's a dirty poor environment where where there you see people suffering you see people like really living life hits at home so much more than if it was in a slick cool looking city like even if it was in new york it wouldn't look quite as badass and surreal looking but when you see this like military grade futuristic robot moving around and being this future cop in a very intense environment like that it just immediately uh uh just makes your head spin a little bit it's so surreal and so awesome
0: they also uh do a great job of just playing it in uh, Vale, playing it straight like it was just a commercial for this yes. actual product which yes is another layer of like you know this is over a decade before black mirror yeah you know what i mean
2: very deadpan very very cool And then you also have Tempot. Tempot, much more of a comedy, but you, again, get vibe. Like, District 9 has a lot of comedy elements in it.
0: Another thing where, you know, uh, Blomkamp is applying this technology in, in ways that we never saw it before. The beginning of District 9 is basically The Office. Yeah. Like, Vickis is Michael Scott. Yeah. He is hapless. He is clueless. Dopey.
2: Everyone around him is almost doing, like cut takes to the yeah Yeah, i um the the camera like it's it's very very uh comedic and fun and it's a fun environment there just so
0: happens to be a fucking praying mantis that's nine feet tall hanging out in the background eating a cow
2: face yes and that again really pushes it home i mean there's also really quick is just add add a color yellow which was done for an adidas ad campaign about an android gone rogue that one's pretty cool that's probably the furthest from the other shorts when it comes to their influence on district nine and the most the the closest to district nine is alive in Joburg. that was the most important one in terms of its lead up into Uh, district nine it's a mockumentary about extraterrestrials marooned in johannesburg like literally what district nine essentially is the
0: aliens in this one uh are i believe they're practical rather than Mm -hmm. fully cg they look completely different than the prawns that we know
2: there's some similarities like they have the little like um
0: don't you dare call a tentacle a mandible because the prawns have mandibles exactly they had tentacles but still two entirely different
2: mouthpieces (laughs) you can see the point a to point b journey that the design entirely different evolutionary (laughs) chains to
0: get to the mollusk like tentacle than the arthropodic mandible
2: and the most interesting thing to me about alive in Joburg is that they used interviews from actual south africans talking about outsiders coming into the country so blomkamp said of this i was asking black south africans about black nigerians and zimbabweans that's actually where the idea came from was there are aliens living in South Africa? I asked. What do you feel about Zimbabwean Africans living here? And those answers, they weren't actors. Those were real answers, which is very fascinating. So all that interview
0: stuff. But of course, in- yeah, and the interviews are yeah, real people being like, oh yeah. no, they try and steal. I have my gun on me. Yeah.
2: In case they like. And yeah. they're talking about real. That's what I'm saying. They're talking about real people. They're talking about They're not. They didn't know they were like going to be put in this thing about referring to aliens they were really talking about the outsiders that were coming in the aliens that were coming in um but the human aliens
0: i should also say that uh alive in joe burke was neil collaborating with charlto copley and his connections in johannesburg because by this point um charlto had uh kind of become this this entertainment guy you know when you're like at a party and you're talking to some guy and he hands you his business card, and it has like eight different job titles on it. Yeah. You know, where it's like producer, casting agent, uh-huh. record manager, DJ. And it's Hot
2: like, dog receiver. Yeah. Um, <laughs> basketball shiner. You so, know what I mean? All those
0: little gigs. So Charlto actually helped put up the money for Alive in Joburg, while uh, Neil's Vancouver friends helped, did, helped do the effects, even though a lot of them was also uh, Neil on his own. Yeah. So is this was like the first taste of having these, again, the nerds in Vancouver and the guys in, in Johannesburg combining efforts to create something truly unique that would have never existed if it wasn't for this one guy's unique life story
2: and everybody's working for nothing or or for very little and they're all it's all
0: it's all good real footage everyone you know it's not it's not all uh altruistic
2: if you squint you can see that like the same person is playing eight different roles (laughs) like that kind of stuff is going on and this catches peter jackson's eye Peter Jackson, of course, Lord of the Rings trilogy, all that good stuff. He is tasked with producing a live action movie. I'm sorry, who? Uh, what? Peter Jackson. Oh, the Frighteners guy. The Frighteners guy. What, meet, what are
0: those other movies he did? Meet
2: the Feebles. Yeah, yeah, Frighteners and Meet the Feebles. The Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Um, Wait, you know, they Lord of the Lo- Rings.
0: They made Lord of the Rings movies?
2: Uh, yeah, the weirdest journey of a director ever from Meet the Feebles to Lord of the Rings, the one to uh, Punch. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Hey, everyone. Holden here. And you know when you're wearing headphones and they catch on like a doorknob or something and get ripped out of your ears? I never want to feel that feeling again. And nor should you. Come on. It's 2019. Everyone ought to have a pair of some sick wireless earbuds from Raycon. I absolutely love them. Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market. And unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet with no dangling wires or stems, thank God. And of course, they don't just look great, they sound great too. I'm a long distance runner. So my favorite are the X90 Titan, which are made specifically for workouts and include noise canceling and wireless charging. The company was actually founded by Ray J, with great artists like Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge, and Snoop Dogg already obsessed with them. Come on, who doesn't love Snoop Dogg? Raycon offers their wireless earbuds for everyone in a range of fun colors and at an unbeatable price. And right now, you can go to buyraycon.com slash wizard to get 20% off your order. That's buyraycon.com wizard for 20% off Raycon wireless earbuds. If you've been eyeing a pair, now is the time to get an amazing deal. One more time, that's buyraycon.com slash wizard. Thanks, y'all. Uh, but anyways he is tasked with producing a live action movie based on halo
0: oh my god. okay all right so all right get, so break this down for me a little i think you have a little
2: bit i think you have a little bit more uh info uh than i was able to gather about this whole weird and interesting time
0: so peter jackson did see what neil blomkamp was doing uh those shorts uh, i remember seeing alive in Joburg online and if you thought if you think those effects look good now uh, when you were watching them in a tiny, you know, dot MOV QuickTime window, they looked photoreal, like unbelievable at the time. And so uh, Peter Jackson was like kind of, you know, taking meetings with him and like kind of giving him mentorship. Meanwhile, Microsoft was ready to enter the big leagues because they were fucking Microsoft and literally everyone's computer ran their software and they had the biggest hit video game in the world. Halo.
2: There was a time, ladies and gentlemen, in computer gaming where a video game called Halo was the most popular game of uh, in the markets.
0: Halo 1? wow, Amazing. Halo 2? A phenomenon. And Halo 3 was just around the corner, and you bet your sweet Aunt Bippy they were going to make a movie. But oh, this isn't yeah. just some normal rights thing. You're not just going to have, like, fucking Columbia TriStar show up with, like, $2 million and call it a day. This is a fucking multimedia life changing experience do you know what Microsoft did to uh, sell the rights to Halo
2: what did they do to sell the
0: rights to Halo they got seven individual adult men dressed them head to toe in fucking Master Chief armor (laughs) made them walk to through the gates of every major studio in Hollywood it got to the point where uh, studios got wind of the publicity stunt and like People like uh, fucking Harvey Weinstein called and got mad that Miramax wasn't on tap for this project. <laughs> uh, even though there was no fucking way Miramax at the time was going to make the fucking Halo movie. Yeah. It was still like a matter of pride right. that everybody was going to get involved. We want the Halo guys to come over. Yeah, yeah. We want So the Master Chief comes in with a futuristic suitcase containing the, uh, the screenplay that Microsoft personally had made by... Um, the guy who wrote uh, 28 days later in the beach they had a real screenwriter uh, write a spec script and every studio had 24 hours to read the script and agree to their terms or make a better offer and after 24 hours the deal would it would be uh it would be closed you didn't get another shot hmm. nobody in hollywood liked this <laughs> microsoft's terms because you know they were microsoft they wanted a cut of the gross they wanted uh, 70 first-class tickets for their executives for the premiere of the movie. This is They uh, wanted final cut on the movie. They wanted uh, final approval of the screenplay. It was literally just this big fuck you thing being like, Hey! Hey, spend a lot of money, and we're in charge. God, dude, I'm so happy
2: that they got brutally (laughs) humbled during the uh, releasing of Xbox One and how badly (laughs) that got bungled, mixed with how Halo has really fallen in popularity as other trends in gaming have taken over. They used to be such fucking loud pricks about everything and like, just really like, yeah, you're just going to pay for this, and you're just going to be fine with it. Yeah, it always has to be online, and it's going to be like, everything you use now for all of it all of your entertainment and like fuck you that's why and you're just like no we're not gonna do that and then that's what uh uh, yeah so this is a pre-humbled uh uh, microsoft
0: there's a wired article called like how the halo movie failed and basically what happened was um i believe it was fox and tristar uh were the only ones that responded and uh While uh, in video game dealings and software dealings, you kind of, the phrase open kimono is used a lot in this article and it freaked me out. Weird. Uh, but you're very straightforward. You're like, this is what I want. This is my price. That's what open kimono means? Yeah, yeah. Fucking, you're showing your that junk.
2: feels racist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else did racist Wired
2: say in their racist article? I mean,
0: they're quoting uh, Hollywood types. And so. I'm no
2: kimono. How about that? Just buck naked, fucking <laughs> pissing on the on the carpet, Jake.
0: Fox and TriStar immediately see past everything. They like just talk to each other and they're like, hey, how much are you gonna bid for this? Eh, that sounds like a lot. I don't want to bid that much. Okay. And together they then go back to Microsoft and is like, hey, we're gonna do a partnership so we don't have to spend as much money and like, fuck you. That's amazing. <laughs> and so already Microsoft is losing control of the deal. Uh, they want Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson's like, I'll produce, but I want my boy Neil Blomkamp to do this because he's great at this kind of sci-fi stuff especially mechanical effects yeah because he has you know, all the, yeah
2: which master chief is very yeah
0: also this is just a weird thing but like neil Baumkamp's a huge sci-fi nerd he fucking knows the halo franchise sure and it's this is the this is the other crazy thing is the halo universe has a massive expanded lore all about the day-to-day like realities of the actual covenant and i forget what what do they call like the good guys Schlugies. no like it's something <laughs> like the alliance or something like oh, okay um, I
2: don't know. I was never like a big Halo guy. I think I've talked about this before.
0: Um, before they, you know, it's it's the the Halo lore is oddly like nitty gritty. And it's actually right up Neil Blomkamp's alley. And so he would be the perfect choice to do this kind of thing. And uh, our old friend, Tom Rothman, who famously gave uh, Ryan Reynolds the fucking runaround and like ah, hated the X-Men movies, yeah. uh, was on the Fox side of things to do this project. And he and Neil Blomkamp... Hated each other. Hold on, I have a quote. Uh This is Neil Blomkamp in the article. Uh, I told Tom Rothman that I was genetically created to direct Halo. However, Blomkamp realizes that the studio didn't share his artistic vision and was uncomfortable at the prospect of his gritty post-cyberpunk aesthetic, all blurry video feeds and radio chatter, dominating the summer blockbuster. Rothman hated me. I think he would have gotten rid of me if he could have. The suits weren't happy with the direction I was going, Thing was, though, I would played Halo and I play video games and I'm that generation more than they are. And I know that my version of Halo would have been insanely cool. It was more fresh and potentially could have made more money than just a generic, boring film. You know, something like G.I. Joe or some crap like that that Hollywood produces. Uh-huh. Despite everything, despite Microsoft hating the deal more and more.
2: Despite- this, all, By the way, can, the, can we also just say that, like, you could maybe argue Mortal Kombat besides that. Like, video game movies aren't hot property. <laughs> Like, like, why the audacity of Microsoft to oh. be like, yeah, this is gonna be the biggest thing ever, and and it's like, oh yeah, is it gonna be like spirits within big like uh, that Tomb kind of Raider,
0: uh, the sequel to Tomb Raider just Tomb ate a Raider, fuck, yeah. ate a oh, fucking yeah, turn, yeah, yeah. Paul W S Anderson uh, Resident Evil movies uh-huh. weren't bringing in that much money; uh-huh. they were doing fine in home video, but like the um, <laughs> the amount of money and control that Microsoft wanted for what was going to be probably just another okay video game movie yeah. was uh, extraordinary. Uh, But still, production was still going ahead. Millions of dollars were getting spent just on pre-production. Way to Workshop uh, and Peter Jackson worked on all these physical props like a real-life warthog and uh, realistic armor and guns. And that was used to make uh, the Neil Blomkamp short films that ended up at... Uh, They were supposed to be test footage, but then they got re-edited and kind of compiled into these three short films that were done uh, to promote Halo 3. Called Landfill, and uh,
2: yeah, that was back in 07. Also, though, Blomkamp is coming up with some plot points. Plot points that when this whole thing falls apart, he ends up infusing into District 9. Uh so essentially, so how, how did it all uh, it just it just imploded so on itself So
0: more money was getting spent everybody was uneasy and uh the two company the two studios that had originally uh, agreed to sign up were like hey Microsoft Peter Jackson's getting a cut we're getting a small cut like every like just there's not enough money here to make it worth it we'd like to renegotiate the deal and Microsoft being the savvy businessman that they were said no and shut it down and took their ball and went home Ah uh leaving poor Neil Blomkamp with months of pre-production work and the dream of producing his first movie, Dashed Against the Rocks.
2: Unbelievable. But there's a silver lining, isn't there? Because Blomkamp ends up sitting down with his wife, Terry Tatchell. I couldn't pronounce it. Terry Tatchell. She graduated from Vancouver Film School's writing for film and television program. Her first project out of school was the Add a Color Yellow short that was directed by Blomkamp. She wrote it. And they sit down. He's got these plot points from the Halo movie he was working on. He's got uh, the short Alive and Joburg. By the way, all those shorts are on YouTube. I highly recommend checking them out. It's very fascinating stuff. Uh, he's got the the premise from Alive and Joburg with some basics there. And they end up um, working, putting together a script. Um, and also, uh, you know, looking at...
0: Yeah. The UAC? Is that the Halo good, guys? I UAC? Isn't that maybe? Sound right? Yeah, that's I think they're
2: fair. just called like the dorks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Master, Master Chief, you gotta save all these dorks.
2: Looks like we'll pull the dork crew together and dork down. Um, uh, so yeah, the there were alien design basics they had in mind, the the mecha suit thing. Uh, And the themes of racial conflict and segregation in South Africa, all getting pulled in there. Blomkamp cites hardcore sci-fi action films as influences on it as well, such as, of course, as per usual, Alien, Aliens, The Terminator, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Predator. I think Robocop really is a big influence here in terms of just the comedy aspects with how ultra violent everything is around the comedy elements um that satire mecha suit, with a purpose that that big mecha suit too um very ed 209 very ed 209 uh and, and and even had the first time you see it in motion even looks like that effect from uh robocop they decide of course to shoot in chiawello soweto which soweto by the way stands for the southwestern townships Apparently, gold was discovered back in the late 1800s near Johannesburg, which led to 100,000 people flocking to this area to get rich, which led to it becoming a hub for the working poor. In the 1930s, the government, seeking to separate the blacks from the whites, created black townships, moving them away from Johannesburg. I'm about to get into that way more because I want to talk about the history of the apartheid in South Africa. I think it's incredibly important in terms of, uh, don't worry, I won't take too long talking about it, but it is fascinating stuff. Um, and this ended up becoming... When Nelson
0: Mandela turned into a half-alien and ripped <laughs> up.
2: Uh, it ends up becoming the largest black city in South Africa and experienced civil unrest during the apartheid regime with serious riots breaking out in 1976. Blomkamp said, The environment is 110% real. It's pure, pure Johannesburg. The
0: specific... What was the name of the the neighbor, the town specifically? Uh, Chiawello. So Chiawello, the specific place they were filming was actually in the middle of a massive relocation
2: program. Yeah, I was going to get to that, but we can talk about it now. Uh, So it's fascinating. Every time they would go, there would be less and less people there. The place they were shooting in these people what, what these people were getting upgrades though, weren't they? It's
0: so it's all very
2: It's very wishy way. Yeah, it was kind of projects they're getting moved into, but they're living in these like shacks.
0: They're living in uh yeah, these tin shacks, these kind of makeshift shelters. Which and, I'll explain a little
2: bit more of the history of that. And they were
0: getting moved to RPD housing, which were uh, you know, more up to code, but you see them, and it's these brick uniform cubes that are yeah, just crammed
2: together. not the best. Uh,
0: and it's, you know, some people, you know, were trying to hold out, and you couldn't hold out. Yeah. So you had to go to the, your, Which your is
2: cube. exactly what was happening in the film during the eviction scenes and everything. It's so fascinating. They even talk about how every time they go back, there'd be less and less people in the camp, and just how eerie that got. So... This, all, all of that even happening is based on what went down with the apartheid. This is a system of institutionalized racial segregation that existed in South Africa from 1948 up to the early 1900s at the hands of an authoritarian political culture that encouraged repression of black and Asian South Africans. This is a disgusting – this is, like, uh, the ugliest of ugly stuff. Like, this is just – white people very obviously just being gross and and segregate and just fucking over other races um and i don't even understand what the motive like it's literally or what the justification is in their head morally for doing stuff like this but uh grudges you know
0: eye for an eye tooth for a tooth uh and it's just these outposts of the imperialist project that just as the world is finally coming to its senses there are people like millions of people where you know they didn't get the memo yet because it's all they've ever known and they're not going to go anywhere. Um, So it's divided into
2: two forms. There's petty apartheid, which was the segregation of public facilities and social events, much like you got during, you know, the civil rights movement and U S history where you had like two different water fountains, that kind of thing. And grand apartheid, which was racially divided employment and housing opportunities, actually moving people off of their land uh, into a shittier place. Uh, so that the Afrikaans... Mm-hmm. Could move in and and you know live live all nice and good and just fuck over these other people. Um, This was sparked by the election of the National Party, which was founded to serve Afrikaner interests. Uh, Afrikaners were basically descendants of the Dutch settlers that arrived back in the 17th century. The first apartheid law was the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act in 1949, which sounds pretty self-explanatory. Followed by the Immorality Amendment Act of 1950, which prohibited sexual relations between different races. The Population Registration Act of 1950 classified all South Africans into one of four racial groups uh, black, white, colored, with a U, and that essentially meant uh, multiracial. So if I do say colored again, I'm using their term for multiracial. Back in the day, I'm not calling it. It's just, you know, it sounds ridiculous now. And Indian. Indian was the fourth
0: one. It's all about doing everything within the power of bureaucracy to, to just separate out, to keep filter out, to no, just to keep whiteness as a privileged yeah. class because yes. without it, what is it without special privilege? What is it without right? Like uh, being extra. If you're just another citizen, if you're a minority in an African country, uh, you know, you don't have control and your entire identity, your entire culture is based around being um, this, you know, this, this, pioneer people who have made it in this land and and these these
2: specific four different classifications once you were classified as as one or the other of uh, this specifically dictated your place of residence so from 1960 to 1983 3.5 million non-white South Africans were removed from their homes and forced into segregated neighborhoods one of the largest mass evictions in modern history during the 70s and 80s resistance to apartheid became more and more militant prompting reforms which of course were not enough like those were just like baby steps uh until finally apartheid legislation was repealed on the 17th of june uh 1991 with fully democratic multiracial elections happening in 1994 now think about that
0: it was now- all because uh little steve van zandt from the east street band who also played silvio dante did a uh did a fun super group song uh, talking about how uh, everybody has to boycott south <laughs> africa that put enough international pressure on fun story interesting i I, I ain't gonna play sun city look it up it's like it sounds dumb but it actually was that's awesome
2: that's awesome because i was about to say think about that 1994 black people are allowed to vote like that's fucking nuts you um, know what i mean like we think about how how it really wasn't that long ago that we were dealing with civil rights and stuff that was at least back in the 60s like the fact that these people are just getting this right back uh in the fucking mid 90s like while i was like not just alive and kicking but like about to become a teenager like that is crazy to me um just timeline wise and the fact that that the, You know, whether people knew about it or not, uh, it's just it's so disgusting. So District 9 refers to a former inner city residential area in Cape Town named District 6. And on uh, February the 11th, 1966, the government declared District 6 a whites only area under the uh, Group Areas Act. With removal starting in 1968, with over 30,000 people affected, relocated to the sandy, bleak Cape Flats township, kind of what you see in the film. Their houses all bulldozed to the ground. The only thing that they allowed to leave standing were uh, houses of faith. All these people's houses were destroyed. They were completely overtaken by uh, whites in the neighborhood it was understood that the reason why they were doing this was because it was just a very conveniently located neighborhood. They did it under the guise of like, oh, that's an immoral neighborhood. They have like, they gamble and they they sex and they yada, yada, yada. Um, so that let's kick them out. But really it was because it was like really close to the city center. It was like a really, it was really close to this like big mountain where you can go like hiking and stuff. It was really close to these different, uh, and, and the harbor as well. Just, it was just this convenient part of town. So uh, territories were set up for the removed citizens called Bantustin, also known as Black Homeland, and mostly consisted of those shacks. And these shacks, again, are made of tin, cardboard, and wood. These are just shitty, shitty spaces. Blomkamp said of all of this, there was a very weird crossover between the film and the reality of filming. Uh, you already talked about this, actually, but I had a really good quote on
0: it. <laughs> it's, uh, no, 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 yeah, read it, read it. because Because okay. it, it's, it's the way the tension between what the movie is trying to abstract and the reality of... Just, it's still happening on the ground while they were filming it. It's yeah. too
2: we We filmed in an area called Chioello, which is a suburb of Soweto, which is sort of a suburb of Johannesburg. And there is this thing in Africa called RDP housing, which are government subsidized housing, where they will build you a brick house in a different area of the city. And you get put on a waiting list if you're a South African impoverished resident until you are able to get one of these houses. So the area we filmed the movie in, what plays is District 9, every single resident in that area was being removed to be put into RDP. RDP housing. Although not all of them had been given the green light on the RDP housing. Most of them had. But all of them were going to be moved, whether they liked it or not. So we ended up with this open piece of land with all these shacks on it. Each day we came to set, there were fewer and fewer people.
0: Another thing the movie does is the the just mundane brutality of bureaucratic relocation. Yeah. Uh, the way Vickis moves from, you know, door to door saying whatever he needs to say to get, uh, you know, the the prawns to sign their official right. relocation consent forms. As if, like, their consent had anything to do with it. Uh, famously, like, one of the, the the prawns, like, knocks it out of his hand and is like, no. And, like, uh, Vigas picks it up and is like, see, he made a mark. That counts. Keep like, next house. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I also really enjoy the depiction, the casualness in the depiction of what he does. Like, he, he this is normal for him, and it seems egregious from the outside. But that reminds me of footage I've seen of people patrolling the borders of, of the U.S. and how, uh, from my point of view, when I watch them, it's disgusting to me. But, like, for them, it's just, it's it's another Tuesday. I mean, that's just, that's just... No, uh, Vickis works
0: alongside, so yeah. everyone's friendly, everyone's yeah, making it bec- jokes. it
2: becomes their reality, and so exactly, they're just joking around, hanging out, and they're excited when they, you know... Find some some bunch of weapons or or uh, a fucking house of uh, little alien babies they can murder. Oh, that's insane! Yeah, that uh, part is disgusting. So
0: a lot of and
2: they're just laughing and it's a good find and score. We're doing our job well, you know. And I you see that so much when you watch actual documentaries of people who have really dark jobs like that.
0: Oh, a lot of those scenes, a lot of these early scenes of uh, Charlto. is improvised, totally improvised, and it's and it's oddly enough, you know, uh, Charles Copley was just Neil Baumkamp's friend and his way, go-to yeah. guy, his kind of. Uh, we didn't really
2: spell that out yet. I was I was definitely waiting to like throw that throw that down, but um, it, it the guy that he met back in high school. They gave him his start on the computers. He ends up casting him into the role of the lead character. He's never done a movie before. Of course he's obviously worked on projects before, but Charlotte Copley ends up being our how do you how do you pronounce it? Wickus Van Der Merle?
0: Wickus Vanderva Vandermeer. Vandermeer. <laughs>
2: he, it was his first role, like I said. He he did actually appear as a soldier and a sniper in both Yellow and Alive in Joburg, but you know, very, probably didn't even say anything. Copley said, Neil presented the idea to me by saying, I've got this idea for a character, a bureaucratic South African guy who has to deal with these creatures and I think you should just test him out. At the time, I didn't know it was the lead character. I thought I'd maybe be behind the scenes in some way, helping Neil shoot it in South Africa. And we shot this test piece and edited it together. It It was a total improv piece we just went to the township and messed around he showed that to peter jackson and peter supported him in casting me and that was it he didn't even know it was going to be the lead that's so crazy and he i think he does an amazing job you
0: hear that hear that there's the babies from the fire (laughs) they leap out of thats it's like popping sound it's it's like popcorn (laughs) it's like popcorn
2: (laughs) fucking amazing he is incredible I know I'm not the first to say it. Sometimes we need a vacation from our vacation. Delayed flights, hotel snafus, chatty travel companions, yeesh. Get away for two minutes, twice a day with Quip. Their wireless electric toothbrush is lightweight and compact, so it packs away easily in your tote or carry-on when you overstuff your luggage. Hey, it happens to all of us. Plus, the time sonic vibrations give you a meditative break from that jam-packed itinerary even if it's just between moving from the hammock to the pool chair. I literally just got back from my trip to New Orleans, and you better believe I brought my quip. I never travel without it. When it's finally time to go home, keep staycationing with a fresh and simple health routine. I also came home to find my refill, by the way, in the mailbox waiting for me. That's because brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. I never used to replace brushes on time, but now I don't even have to think about it. And hey, any of you guys got kids? Well, they have a kid's brush now. The new brush is the same as the original version, just tweaked for size down mouths. Kids are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels like the products the adults in their life use and they're proud to use quip help them develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks honestly i can say that quip is one of my favorite products we've advertised here on this show it's so easy to use and i finally actually brush for the proper two minutes you're supposed to spend on your teeth twice a day i was always too impatient before to give my teeth the proper care they need that's why i love quip and why i took it on my trip to new orleans this past week Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com forward slash wizard right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash wizard. He is so funny, and it's so... Do- and, and 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 then, like, he gets his ass kicked. Over and over again in this movie, just goes from intense situation to intense situation, and I think he does a great job of
0: selling that. He goes through the cycle of like rage and rebellion, and then acceptance and like sadness, like over yeah. and over and over again. There's a scene where he's like uh, on board uh, Christopher Johnson, the ironically named prom that is actually trying to get the the aliens to like uh, revive their technology and actually escape. Uh, he's on board one of his, his ship. And uh, he finally, like, takes a look in the mirror and sees mm-hmm. how his uh, progression into an alien is going. And he's, like, ripping off pieces of skin. An amazing piece of prosthetic work. Yeah, oh, my God. And he is losing his shit it's in incredible. the most believable, yeah. like, honest-to-God, raw-acting oh, performance. The
2: fingernails is the
0: worst. It's And by the end, by the way, I, I want to
2: take a second and say, we talk about how good the special effects are with the robotics and the big action pieces. But that transformation, makeup on him, all throughout the movie, is unbelievable. I I was a real standout for me watching this time. The way that he looks at the end, not at the very end of the movie when he's fully changed, but the way that he, yeah, when he's got the big eye and everything, it's it's so good. I, I was just blown away by how good that special effects makeup work was.
0: Now, he carries this movie on his shoulders yes. and without him we wouldn't be talking about it. No, I it's such think so. a raw he, performance.
2: He just crushes it. And he's so charming and he's so funny. And that's a really hard sell because he's an evil piece of shit from the very beginning. You know, I mean or or not, you know, it's like you can tell he's not like inherently evil, but you know that he's he's lost in the way that this these people view this these aliens. I mean,
0: that's what makes this movie so effective. Yeah. Is that He is just, he's not, he's not one of the old white men in the suits that are, like, actively making the evil decisions.
2: He's the Michael Scott, like you said.
0: Uh, And he just casually accepts it and experiencing in real time his literal depersonization. Yeah. As, like, they just stop addressing him. They stop, like, even seeing him as a person. Yeah. Which is what happens when a country, when a population just cannot, like, you know, where there's just too much cultural and linguistic differences between a refugee population and a base population. Like at a certain point, you just stop seeing them as people. Yeah, And so it's happening in real time to the most mundane executor of that process. And it's just, beautifully done
2: really really fascinating and uh, as an actor Holden, mm-hmm. i am not an actor i barely consider myself an actor but go on
0: as a trained thespian <laughs> uh is the fact that charlotte copley was kind of an amateur that like gave him freedom to cut loose like that or is talent helped. talent i think it
2: helped but i think that the way he talked about finding the character and the way he talked about how he's like always been really good at dialect work And he he specifically chose the dialect he chose.
0: He wasn't that. The dialect work in Powers is like real bad. Don't don't tell me. Oh really?
2: Well, he. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen his other work. But I feel like the way he d- d- discussed it, it didn't seem like he was just kind of bumbling his way through. Like, mm. he, he talks about coming to the character, about how once he, like, locked into that character, he was able to just really go with it for the whole rest of the movie. How he, you know... And, and it, he talks about his relationship with the character in a way that says to me that he's more of an actor than, you know, most people. Okay. Uh, I, I would say. Um, but uh, anyways... Another interesting thing, I think, about the movie, going back to the shooting of it, uh, it took place during the winter in Johannesburg, which Blomkamp says actually looks like Chernobyl, a nuclear apocalyptic wasteland. I think also Chernobyl did play uh, a part, like have an influence on, especially with the transformation stuff and everything, with getting shot with, even, even the thing itself, it makes like the... Uh, what is it called? The Geiger meter or something? Oh yeah, what is it yeah, called? The,
0: uh, the Geiger counter.
2: Geiger counter. It even even sounds like it. You know what I mean? It sounds like it's a nuclear thing or whatever. And then he gets shot with the thing, and he's he thinks he you know he doesn't think it's a problem. And then it's just like you know trying to hide the fact that he's like his whole body's falling apart. Um, it, it definitely <laughs> when he
0: bom- vomits black bile all over all his over the cake,
2: and it tries to clean it too. which just like so. It's just so good. Um, it took a total of 60 days to shoot over the months of June and July to capture a deserted, bleak atmosphere. And but if you if you they had to go reshoot in December and actually had a hard time getting the good greenery that actually exists there, like out of the frame. Mm-hmm. So this this definitely is a version of Johannesburg that is specifically like shitty, and that it, it is actually a pretty beautiful place. Just. Depending on like when you're there and whatnot, you know what I mean.
0: uh, It's it's almost become a meme now. uh, Where uh, have you seen this on on like Reddit or something? Where like they just uh, it's like Mexico in real life, and it's just a normal picture. Yeah, yeah. And then like Mexico in movies, and they just that weird yellow tint. Yeah, yeah. It's so
2: bizarre. Basically,
0: everywhere that isn't America gets the yellow tint treatment.
2: Exactly. Since there was a bunch of handheld shooting, the crew went with the digital Red 1 4K camera using the nine of them that Peter Jackson owned for primary filming, the cinematographer was Trent Opalock out of Canada, and this was his first film, which I think is incredibly depress- uh, uh, impressive. impressive and horribly depressing. <laughs> it put me into a, just a depression <laughs> spiral I haven't eaten in days. Uh, he, uh, but I think that is incredibly impressive. I think it is a beautifully shot film. He would end up going on to do the cinematography for the Russo brothers, specifically Captain America Winter Soldier, Civil War, wow. Avengers Infinity War, and Endgame. So and that and I thought that was one of the cooler facts that I learned. Like, whoa, that guy's doing. Hey, we just need, fine.
0: We need naturalistic footage where there's just a giant CGI man that's yeah, also there with them. Exactly,
2: exactly. He's just made for that. The alien eviction scenes, as we said, were improvised. Um, but uh, I wanted to just circle back around to to that. Uh, first of all, we haven't mentioned Jason Cope. Jason Cope played like all of the aliens, apparently.
0: He Um, was the guy in the gray motion suit with all the dots on it. He
2: specifically played Christopher Johnson, but I think he played all of the prawns in the film as well,
0: including the guy who's openly peeing while waving a shovel. Maybe I love that guy. Such a good one.
2: Uh, he is Also in a
0: pink bra. He's in a pink bra. <laughs> that's right.
2: Peeing and waving a shovel. He's a South African actor that did some small South African TV work before getting the role. He also played the cameraman Trent, one of the narrators of the film, and several of the background voices that you hear. He, just, he was just used a lot. And so um, Blomkamp said, so we would film the two of them, and then we would go to a different shack, and he'd pretend to evict a new alien. Then we'd go somewhere else and somewhere else, so it was just the two of them. It's the conversations between those two, the actual dialogue. What actually came out of them was totally improvised. Any details and words and the language between the two happened right there on the day of shooting. That's what makes it feel like they were really communicating. And even he would he would be like he would be like they would impromptu like draw the gang sign. And he's like, yeah, it's a gang here. <laughs> it's a gang. You see the sign right here, and he would dictate stuff like that. Like that wasn't in the movie until he made the joke about the gang sign and they were like all right cool paint a gang sign on there and then we'll use that or whatever yeah Uh,
0: okay because like in the movie it's kind of hard to tell what is like him actually being an expert and what's him like any bureaucrat pretending that he knows what
2: he's talking about totally totally and that kind of i think more is that him Mm -hmm. pretending he knows what he's talking about but it's still these choices he's making that's informing the uh filming
0: oh also just uh i'm gonna uh (laughs) this is just a weird interesting point uh Uh, The government of Nigeria was very mad that the uh, crime lords in the movie uh, who believed in witchcraft and cannibalism uh, were referred to only as the Nigerians. Uh, But it kind of, uh, you know, it's just, you know, makes you, huh? Makes you think, makes you think, huh? That even in what we consider this like, uh, you know, violent, troubled area like Johannesburg, South Africa, even they, you know, Read the news and watch movies. And they're like, oh yeah, Nigerians are all like fucking warlords and voodoo men. <laughs> like you know, it's it's all it's all tiered. It's all layers. It's yeah, all-
2: Nigerians, uh, Nigeria's information minister called for the mo- for movie theaters around the country to either ban the film or edit out references to the country due to its depiction of them as criminals and cannibals. I think it's the cannibal part that's really <laughs> really rough. Um, they it was later banned by Nigeria by the Nigerian Film and Video Censors Board. The film has also been criticized by folks for its one dimensional depiction of Nigerians, um, the characters, as well as it being the uh, definitely being that like white savior movie. But I do appreciate I think it could have been interesting is if you had the Nigerians connecting to the aliens because uh, how oppressed they've been, you know, helping them get out. I think there is an interesting story there, but I do love the arc that our main character goes through i think it's so fascinating to watch someone i mean that's such an arc to go from being this bumbling like working for the man kind of guy that's like all about his job to uh leading the like rebellion essentially for the prawns um so let's talk a little bit about the visual effects i mean that's like the the center of of all of this Blomkamp said, I very purposefully wanted all of District 9 to feel as real as possible, even though, you know, 50 percent of the film is presented in a cinematic way. He designed uh, the designs were done by uh, Weta Workshop and executed by Image Engine. What a workshop, of course, the special effects and prop company based in Miramar, New Zealand. It was founded in 1987 by Richard Taylor and Tanya Roger as RT Effects. They had trouble finding work at first until they met Peter Jackson. It was a match made in heaven. He, he was still living at home with his parents. He uh, pulls them into work on his twisted puppet musical comedy, Meet the Feebles, and horror and his horror comedy, Brain Dead. These are his like cult classics that he started out with. Uh, Meet the Feebles, this filthy puppet movie. He ended up running out of money, by the way, during that movie, and had to hold the camera and do the puppeteering <laughs> at the same time. Uh, And this, of course, eventually led to Lord of the Rings and the rest is history. Again, simple beginnings leading to these incredible, extraordinary, uh, wildly imaginative films. And I think that that's such an, an important part of this story. Um weta is the common name for a group of about 70 insect species by the way disgusting endemic to new zealand referred to by taylor or roger i don't know which imagine
0: one imagine a grasshopper the size of your open palm it's it, they're terrifying
2: he calls it new zealand's coolest little monster a bizarre and prickly prehistoric cricket also interesting you're really sounding very similar to some of the characters in district nine that's very fascinating uh, Jake. i
0: oh i will just say that um <laughs> i there's some interviews you can find with the team at was imagine effects
2: yeah, Imagine Effects, visual effects studio based in Vancouver, founded in 1995, starting off doing effects mostly for television on, hey, you guessed it, Stargate SG-1, which is based out of Canada, but also did films such as iRobot, uh, or did work on films such as iRobot and Night at the Museum.
0: They claim that uh, at some point in the movie, uh, they had to like kind of throw out a lot of the mocap work that had been done, because uh, Car- Carlto? Jason, Jason Cope. Jason Cope uh, was uh, wow. I don't know where I got that from. Uh, you
2: got Charlto Copley uh, is is and it does come on. Jason Cope, Charlto Copley. Hmm. I could see where you would do that. <laughs> um,
0: uh, was still moving too human, and so they had to like do a lot of animation work to like make the bugs like move more tightly and more mm. like erratically to kind of sell that um, otherworldliness. Blomkamp
2: actually originally wanted Way to Digital to design the creatures, but they were too busy with Avatar. So, wanting to keep it Canadian, he checked out Image Engine, which he considered a bit of a gamble, as the company hadn't worked on a project of such scale before. Way to Digital designed the mothership, though, and the dropship that comes out of it. The Embassy Visual Effects, this is another studio out of Vancouver, did the exosuit, as well as... Um, the li- those little fucking the pets, the oh little, the yeah. little like the cockfighting shit that they do with those gross yeah. little guys. People uh, uh,
0: sometimes label those as the young because, like in uh, the egg sacs, they also have like weird little spindly bits. Right. But apparently, those they, are supposed to be like uh, do-
2: like like cats or dogs, like uh,
0: more specifically uh, rats, like kind uh, of vermin
2: that was just on the mother. Gotcha, ship. gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so in terms of the alien design, Blomkamp wanted aliens to have both humane and barbaric features. Terry Thatchell said. Uh, They are not appealing, they are not cute, and they don't tug at our heartstrings. We went for scary, hard, warrior-looking aliens, which is much more of a challenge. The uh, exoskeleton-slash-crustacean mix evokes disgust from the viewer initially in order to earn the sympathy later on in the movie with their emotions and characterizations that are more based in humanity. They were restricted, though, to a bipedal form because, according to Blomkamp, unfortunately, they had to be human-esque. Because our psychology doesn't allow us to really empathize with something unless it has a face and an anthropomorphic shape. Uh, Like, if you see something that's four-legged, you think it's a dog. That's just how we're wired. If you make a film about an alien force, which is the oppressor or aggressor, and you don't want to empathize with them, you can go to town. So creatively, that's what I wanted to do. But story-wise, I just couldn't. And I thought that was really fascinating that, like, our brains won't allow sympathy for an alien if it doesn't kind of have a humanistic I mean, element those, to it. I mean, those
0: big old eyeballs, you got to feel for them.
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really bizarre, interesting psychology that goes into this kind of thing. The, the designing of an alien that you're trying to, especially this, it's so complex, because you're trying to get everyone to be like, ew, and kind of scared of them at first, and then but still, design them in a way that eventually you will feel for them. That is a fascinating task.
0: Bugs are actually a, like kind of amazing. Can, mm. They can be cute or utterly horrifying. Yes,
2: it's actually- very very weird to think about and how we perceive things. Um, you know, it's like it's in other words, it's so weird how. Innately offended, I am by a cockroach. <laughs> like I'm just, I fu- I just, I'm, I, I just, it puts me into a rage the moment I see like a big
0: one. You but know a ladybug? I mean? Oh my god! Oh my get god, over let's here! Let's hang out. I'm gonna give you little teeny kisses. Let's chill. Um, also, this is more homework. You guys can look up. Uh, Neil Blomkamp <laughs> gave a TEDx, not official TED, but a TEDx talk about mm. how he imagines alien life would exist, and it is, and he says on purpose, like. District 9 has nothing to do with what I envision aliens ah, to be.
2: interesting. Greg Broadmoor, the Weta Workshop designer, said, The aliens actually went through a huge design process. Neil came down with one design, and he actually went away and did some test footage with that, came back, designed a completely new alien that looked nothing like the first one. We just wanted to make something more imposing, more threatening, more dangerous. Also, by the way, their, like, superhuman strength that you see, like, you don't even...
0: Oh, when they, when that they one look, guy oh, who's eating the tire yeah.
2: just fucking front kicks a dude off the plane. Cause you don't know that. Cause up until that moment, they look weak. They mm-hmm. look like homeless people in the sense that you just only see them scrounging. Uh, nobody's through.
0: stronger than the homeless. Yeah.
2: <laughs> when you see them like just scrounging through the garbage. And then when that first happens, you're like, holy shit. Also, you're like, oh, they're going to be that violent. Oh. And they just don't stop. I mean, the amount. Because especially when you have like future alien weaponry, these people are literally just just exploding meat sacks uh at points in the movie and uh i really loved it the way that the like the leader of the like nigerian um people or whatever in the in the shacks like the way that he dies it's like
0: brutal oh oh yeah we're you know what we're not gonna spoil that one yeah we don't have to spoil that that one
2: So let's talk briefly about the music. It was composed by Clinton Shorter, who is also a Canadian. He composed the music for over 300 television episodes. I'm I'm just going to guess that Stargate (laughs) SG-1 was on that list. His second gig ever was the Alive in Joburg short, actually. And Bombcamp said he wanted something raw and dark, but which maintained its African roots, which was a challenge because kind of like how they ha- could only shoot in certain months there because the foliage is actually very beautiful there. Um, uh, c- shorter... Really struggled with the fact that most South African music was like v- is very optimistic and <laughs> joyful, and that was actually doing a disservice to him. He ended up having to utilize vocals and smaller percussion elements from so- uh, South African influence, while infusing percussion from the taiko, which is a Japanese drum, as well as synthesized instruments to create the effect. The soundtrack features music and vocals from kwaito artists. Uh, this is a music genre that emerged from Johannesburg, which is a variant of house music featuring African sound and samples and i get
0: that that it's like just even tr- try to imagine a mournful kalimba yeah
2: it doesn't work he it couldn't don't work. do it yeah he had to throw it out yeah he, he had to get rid of certain instruments and not even use them all together even though they were very specifically south african uh, the marketing i remember was kind of fun they put up the signs around the cities of bus stops and other public spaces with the humans only mm-hmm. signs that those did stick out to me i thought that was really fascinating and they were done in a way that was like They were put in places where you would have seen segregational signage, you know, back during this, you know, Mm -hmm. civil rights movement. Um, they also had a toll-free number written on them for people to report any issues. The This number received around 33,000 phone calls during a two-week period, and 2,500 of the callers left voicemails to report alien activity, <laughs> which is, I think is a lot Thank of fun. Um, it ended up grossing $210 million on a production budget of $30 million. It got four Academy Award nominations, including Picture of the Year, Writing, Adapted Screenplay, and Editing. I don't believe it, it won a single one of them, but still, to get... For a sci-fi movie like this to get that much attention from the Academy is actually a huge, huge feat. Uh, So I'll just say this about uh, after District 9 blomkamp went on to direct the sci-fi film starring matt damon called elysium in two- 2013 which i quite enjoyed did you watch elysium i did not see elysium elysium's good check blomkamp. it out it's good i i thought so i thought it was really strong but uh then came chappy in 2015 unfortunately did not get a lot of great reviews i've heard some people really enjoyed it though and i would like to watch it at some point it seems like it's kind of a fun romp but it did not do well
0: blomkamp uh says that uh He's glad that he got to make a movie that only he could have made even if the audience wasn't ready for it. Um and that uh, you know Did you see it? No, no, no. I need but to watch I it. just watched I just listened to an interview with him where he was very adamant that he knows nobody liked Chappie. He's aware <laughs> that there was not a strong Chappie fandom, but he still does not regret making it.
2: I would watch it, uh yeah, for sure. Also, in 2009, he said that he'd be interested in making a sequel to District 9 if it did well enough uh, in the theaters. And then in 2013, he said, I really want to make a District 9 sequel. I genuinely do. The problem is I have a bunch of ideas and stuff that I want to make. I'm relatively new to this. I'm about to make my third film. And now the uh, the pattern that I'm starting to realize is very true, is that you lock yourself into a film beyond the film you're currently working on, but it just doesn't work for me. So who knows? Maybe uh, we'll also, get
0: the single. Oat Studio Project. What's that? The, in the past couple of years, he's been involved in basically self-producing his own shorts for the internet, trying to kind of make this new crowdfunding kind of universe. I think I think a Kickstarter uh, for a movie of his fell through, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of really good shorts. Uh, look up Raka cool uh and yeah it's him and a bunch of other of his collaborators kind of producing stuff 100% independently under the title the oats St- oats studio hey there you have it that is our episode
2: on district nine i loved revisiting this i love this movie such a good movie i am just like i'm i am covered in sweat i love this movie so much no, you're, because you're, we're recording in the studio in the middle of summer yeah um but thank you so much everybody for joining us if you'd like to follow us further we do weekly bonus content on our patreon page patreon.com forward slash whizbrew for just five bucks a month you get that weekly bonus content also you can follow me further twitch.tv forward slash
0: holdenators Jake. i could hear your last brain cell die <laughs> it incre- pop like popcorn, <laughs> um, I pop like popcorn. Uh, <laughs> follow me there's on twitter so good, at best jake young there's so many good throwaway
2: lines in that in that movie go watch it all right stop listening to this go watch it right now quit your job and go watch it all right take care everybody Oh, and always remember, never stop whizzing.
0: And keep on bruising.
2: Woo, we've, we remembered to do it. We almost forgot. Bye, everybody. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.